I had asked you last week, and I'm going to keep asking you because I think it would be so beneficial to you and to our time as we look through this letter together, verse by verse, section by section, to read through the entire letter uh, in the previous week, or maybe even on Saturday night, or for that matter, Sunday morning. So if you didn't do that, don't feel guilty or ashamed, but I just want to encourage you again this week that you would read through the entire letter, okay? Your pastor's just encouraging you to read through the entire letter, and if you're up to it, do it more than once. I think it would be an incredible blessing to you, and it will help you as we, as I said, work through the letter section by section so that you really understand. I think you'll start to get and see Paul's intention, Paul's heart, and what he's hoping to communicate via this letter to the church in Philippi and even to us by extension here as a church ourselves. So this is part two. So if you weren't here last week, you'll have to catch it online because I don't plan on really covering much of what was covered last week. But I will read that section and I'll make a few comments, and then we'll step into the next section. So last week, we, we covered verses 7 through 8, which is really Paul's heart. That's what's communicated there, Paul's heart for the Philippians, or the church in Philippi, the congregation that resided there, that was there. And so beginning in verse 7, it reads like this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He longed to be in their company again. And, and you remember that Paul is where right now when he's writing this letter? You remember? He's, yes, he's imprisoned. He's confined. He's under house arrest in Rome, maybe even chained there under house arrest. Why is he imprisoned? <laughs> yes, for nothing more than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He longs to see with this church, uh, see this church again, to be with them, to be with these Christ lovers, and he's expressing some of his feelings here for them and why he has said some of the things he said. I'll, I'll cover that in just a moment as we review uh, the entire section, but now let's read the new section. So that was part one, Paul's heart for the church. Now let's look at Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi, and that is found in verses 9 through 11. There we read this. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So let me do this for you. Let me give you a review of what we've kind of been talking about in this first part of this section and, and kind of walk you up to this point, and I'll just do it in kind of a paragraph. But some of it has been, is explicit that I'll, in my review, is it's explicit. You see it right there in the text that we've already covered. Some of it, I believe, is implied, and it's really my paraphrase of kind of everything leading up to this point, all right? So let me do that for you. Just listen. So in verses 3 and 4, which we've covered in a previous section, at a previous 4, previous Sunday, Paul says, I thank my God every time. I thank my God every time. This is how he opens the letter. I thank my God every time I remember you. And in my every prayer for you all, church in Philippi, I always pray with joy, with joy. Then verse 7, it is right for me to think and, and feel as I do about you. It is right for me to be 
well disposed toward you, for you indeed hold a special place in my heart. Why? Because of our enduring partnership in the gospel, a partnership that flows out of the great love and devotion we share for Christ. All of you are indeed partakers with me of God's grace. A grace that has caused us to truly see the glory and splendor that Christ is. That has drawn our hearts to him. And has been moving and motivating us to do what we can to make him known to the world. So that others might join with us in our great adoration and worship of him. And now. I pray this for you. Philippians 1.9 That your love may abound more and more with or in we'll talk about that in a moment with or in as it's translated in other Bibles Knowledge and all discernment. Okay. So just, I want you to continue to keep the main idea here going forward with me so that you don't get lost in any of the details. They're all pointing to the same idea and concept. And hopefully, in that review I gave you, you kind of can feel and understand Paul's heart, where he's going, what he's trying to communicate to these Philippians. But here in his prayer, we can see that the church in Philippi was certainly, was certainly not loveless or lacking in biblical love. For sure not. You see that, you know that. He, he's giving thanks to God for them every time he remembers them. They are good and faithful and loyal partners with him in the ministry of the gospel in advancing Christ. And even here, he's, his prayer is not that you would have love or that your deficient love would be made right, but rather it's that their love would abound more and more. It would keep on abounding, keep on increasing, keep on multiplying. Right? We know they were not loveless or lacking in love. Their, their lives, beloved, clearly testified to a spirit-produced love for Christ and his church. They were a congregation committed to the glory of the Lord, committed to the Lord's fame, the Lord's praise, committed to the Lord's plan and purposes for his followers, and committed to the true good of one another. They were a good church. By God's standards. But that, but that didn't mean they were problem free. That didn't mean they were problem free. They were a church still on this side of heaven. <laughs> so still prone to difficulties. Challenges. Still prone to sin. As I've said before, reading through this entire letter, and that's why I want you to keep doing it. It'll just really be so helpful to you. But reading through this entire letter, one can conclude that all was not well in this Christ-loving, Christ-exalting, Christ-advancing church. One commentator points out that in the church there were, he puts it this way, tendencies, and he draws this conclusion from the letter itself from in its entirety. But in the church, there were tendencies toward disunity and fault-finding 
fault-finding that needed to be corrected. That needed to be corrected. And we, we see this certainly implied as we read different sections of the letter, so let me remind you of those. In Philippians 2, chapter 2, he writes to this church that brings him such joy and puts him in a place where he can continue to thank God for them. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Philippians 2, 14, a few verses down in that chapter. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, arguing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul's always an encourager and he draws on the positive, but he also deals with the negative. Philippians 3, in a different translation. We must hold on to the progress we have already made. Church is about 10 years old. Paul planted the church. Paul has been a partner with this church and them with him for this time, for this period. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Those who follow our example, well, our example would immediately be Timothy, right? Timothy's there, remember I said, he includes Timothy in their introduction because Timothy is there with him, ministering to him there under house arrest and may have been the one who wrote the letter for him as it was dictated to him by Paul, Paul being bound in chains. But follow our example. Those, those who, like me and Timothy, do what? What's the example? Well, a few verses earlier in, in 2.21, Speaking of Timothy, Paul says he, he serves the interest of Jesus Christ. Follow that example. That, that's, your, that's what defines you. You serve the interest of Jesus Christ. That's your desire. That's your goal. That's your overriding MO. You serve the interest of Jesus Christ, not your own selfish ambitions. Not your own desires, but the desires of Jesus Christ. Then in Philippians 4, we see clearly there's something wrong, at least with these two in the church. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Another translation, to live in harmony in the Lord, which means... There wasn't harmony. There was a disagreement of sorts. He goes on to say, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Those are clues to the reality that there were, there were some trouble brewing in this very good church. Potential gospel distracting or distracting from what they've been doing, which is making Christ known and living for Christ. It could potentially hinder that work, get in the way of that work. This is a good church, but trouble has crept in. You with me? And just every time I say it's a good church, remember... It's a good church because they are all about, and have been at least, all about Christ. Serving him, advancing him, promoting him. And in that vein, 
cooperating and helping and partnering with Paul, who had made Christ known to them and was the apostle to the Gentiles, given that office and responsibility by Christ himself, making Christ known to the world. So, in light of certain problems that were brewing in the church, and now that you, I hopefully understand this, Paul's prayer then is for the Philippians. It's in that context that he writes this prayer to this church that he loves, is that the spiritual fruit of love would abound more and more, more, more. That is, with or in knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge and all discernment. And I think that's important that you don't miss that. It's not just love, that their love would abound, but their love would abound in knowledge and all discernment. So what is that? What is, what's going on here? What is he trying to communicate? One commentator says this concerning that word in, and I know the ESV translates it with, which is fine as well, but you'll notice most other translations use the word in. It just says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. I agree with this commentator when he says what Paul is doing is pointing to the way for love to increase. He is pointing to the way for biblical love to increase, to multiply, to abound more and more in this church. He says the preposition in or translated within the SV, expresses an instrumental sense, an instrumental sense. So I, I, might say, I might say something like this so you understand that. My wife has been instrumental in the man I have become. What am I saying? She plays a violin and... Huh? Yeah, she, she was something, she had something to do something significant to do with who I am, yeah? Instrumental. Knowledge and discernment has something very important to do with the increasing, the multiplying, uh, the abounding of biblical love. Does that make sense to you? Love abounds, as the author, the commentator points out, more and more because of knowledge. Because of knowledge. Now, we'll, we'll get to knowledge in a second here, right? Let's, let's just figure this out first. Make sure we understand this statement. Love abounds more and more because of knowledge. Love indeed needs to, biblical love needs to be instructed by this knowledge. Instructed. Love is multiplied, if you will, in knowledge. And for that matter, as Paul points out, discernment. All discernment. Another uh, puts it this way, the growth or increase of biblical love is bound up with knowledge and all discernment, which is why Paul's prayer is stated this way. One author says this, when we ask in what ways love is to abound more and more, the answer is that the growth of love is controlled and directed by knowledge and discernment. You with me so far? Okay, so this is how love is magnified, multiplied, increased, and it abounds more and more. It does so in knowledge and in all discernment. That's what Paul is saying there. So what is knowledge and all discernment? All right. Knowledge. Well, it's not knowledge in general. Okay? Biblical love does not increase because you have more knowledge in general. Or more knowledge about math, right? I mean, you might have the multiplication tables down, but that doesn't make love multiply. You get me? Knowledge, knowledge here, it's a, a single Greek word, and it refers to intensive or deep spiritual knowledge. One writer points out this word is used especially of the knowledge of God and of Christ. 
the knowledge of God and of Christ, a knowing of Him, an intimate knowing of Him. Another author points out that the word occurs 20 times in the New Testament, always referring to knowledge of the things of God, spiritual, theological knowledge. Another author says that knowledge should be understood as, the way he sees it here, as knowing God through Christ in an intimate way. And I would say knowing him and knowing him better, more. Beloved, the, the more we truly, as his children, because if you're not his child, you have to first come to him through Christ and become his child, because then you really don't have an intimate knowledge of him at all. You might know things about him, but you don't know him. You don't. That's a work of the Spirit that dwells in you when you give your life to Christ and surrender your will to him. The more we truly come to know him, tell me if this is so, child of God. Tell me if this is so, if what I'm saying is true, and you can affirm it. The more we truly come to know him, our God, our Lord, our Savior, the more we truly come to know him, the more we will truly love him. I mean, that's just not so with people, always. Oh, but it is with him. The more we truly come to know him, the more we will truly love him. Love will be multiplied for him. And the more we will understand what true biblical love is. Since he, he is love, and he loves perfectly, Love is multiplied. Love for him. Love for one another is multiplied in knowing him and knowing him better. We, we covered that in our Behold Your God study. To know him is to love him. And to know him better is to love him even better, and to love what he loves. So this knowledge fuels, informs, and maximizes the Christian's love. Our love for God and our love for his church and our, our love even for those who are not yet part of the church, who are outside, but are his elect waiting to hear the gospel and, and be transformed by the work of the Spirit. So, what about discernment? This love is maximized, it is multiplied, it abounds by knowledge and, and all discernment. Other translations have depth of insight. That's the NIV 84. The new uh, International Reader's Version has just the word understanding. Understanding. By knowledge and understanding. The Greek definition of the word includes this, having the capacity to understand, having insight. If I was just going to use the word that they used here for the English translation, discernment, well, what is discernment? That is the ability to understand and judge well or judge rightly. 
If I was to use the word insight, well, that's uh, an accurate and deep understanding. So, one writer comments that this prayer here, while general enough to be prayed for every Christian community, right? I mean, Paul, could, Paul would desire, I think Paul would pray that for any, I mean, we could also, we could pray Paul's prayer for Summit or for any Christian community that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. But the prayer here may have had, and I think it does, special significance for the Philippians because of the problems, he says, of selfishness and division that had crept in. That had crept in. Praying for their love to abound it abounds in knowledge and all discernment. He's praying that it, it increases and intensifies. And I think we can, we really understand what he's after, okay? When we look at verse 10, and this is why it's so important to keep everything in context. Keep, he's still talking. He hasn't stopped talking. So let's find out what he says after this to make sure we're understanding what he just said, understanding it rightly. So look back now, Philippians 1, and it is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more with or in knowledge and all discernment. You ready? Here's the so that clause. Here's why I'm praying this specifically, so that you, church in Philippi, good church in Philippi, but troubles are brewing. So that you, good church in Philippi, that has partnered with me in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, is, who loves Christ as I love Christ, who is looking to advance the cause of Christ, who is making sacrifices for that, for him, who is living for the Lord and loving the Lord, but trouble is a brewing. So that you may approve what is excellent. All right. A couple of the translations of that phrase in verse 10. So that you, right? I want, I'm praying that you would multiply, abound more and more in your love, in knowledge and all discernment, so that you can approve the things that are Superior, all right, another translation. Here's another one. For I want you to understand what really matters. I want you to understand what really matters. The one writer paraphrases it as, I want you to have a sense of what is vital to know for certain what is critical and most important. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on, and remember, just for a second, remember, what, is he, what do you think he might be thinking about? Before I give you the answer, what is it that is most important? What is it that is superior and excellent? What is it that really matters? And how would their love being intensified and maximized as they come in greater and greater knowledge of God and understanding of how things should be and are to be, having all discernment. What's the connection? What do you think it is? What do you think it is? Yeah, who said, said the gospel? The gospel, right? So for all this period of time, the gospel, which is, again, to remind you, uh, not a set of documents, but the story of him, Christ, Jesus, right? It is, it is him. It is, it is the story of a person. And as I said before, his, his all that was prophesied of him, his coming into the world, his birth, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, his promises, his coming again, his kingdom his eternal reign. That's the gospel. 
okay? That's what matters most. Knowing it, promoting it, advancing it, and I keep saying it because I'm referring to the gospel, but might I say knowing Christ, promoting Christ, advancing Christ, making Christ known. That is what is most vital. If my love is growing in the knowledge of God, then I will love what he loves. And what does God love more than God the Son? Well, he loves his children for sure, but does he love anything more than his son? I mean, the story is about him, folks. All of history is about him, and going forward, it will all be about him. That's, it's it, okay? That's how it is. Now, in our foolishness, and sinfulness, we try to make it about something else. We do the most ridiculous thing. We try to make it about us. Really silly. But fool, sin makes you foolish and silly. That's a nice word. I'm trying to be nice this morning for a moment. If, I, if my love is multiplying, this is the prayer, in this knowledge of God, and as a result, I'm loving Him more, I'm loving what He loves, I'm learning what true, perfected love really is, so I'm loving, and it's growing and multiplying in all discernment, I'm loving what I should be loving, I'm giving myself to what I should be giving myself Two. Huh? You are you fly you flowing with me now? Is it starting to the passage starting to maybe make more sense to you? Then I will approve the things that are superior. I will understand what really matters. Martin Lloyd Jones, commenting on this passage, says this: the difficulty in life is to know. On what we ought to concentrate. The whole art of life, I sometimes think, is the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, what to put on one side. How prone we are to dissipate our energies and to waste our time by forgetting what is vital and giving ourselves to second and third rate issues. Listen, I don't know what the ladies were fighting about. But it probably wasn't about the gospel. All right? How to advance it better. I don't know what all the grumbling and disputing was about, but I bet you it wasn't for the cause of Christ. You get me? All these things we give our energies to just sucks a church dry, sucks Christians dry, and leaves nothing there for what should be their primary pursuit in life. We willingly do this, folks. Giving ourselves to things that we probably should ignore, leave out of our lives, or at least put it in its proper place, like low on the totem pole, or low in level of importance. I don't know if that's a proper illustration, but I've heard various things about totem poles, so I'll just leave that one out, scratch that from the record. Don't use that one. But low in the place of importance, like even our 
own interest, setting those aside for the interest of Christ and advancing him. Church is blown apart left and right because people are want to fight and argue and complain because they have their agenda, and if their agenda is not fulfilled, then they can't stand it, right? All the while, all the energy, all the, all the efforts poured towards these things to try to keep them from blowing the church apart, all the while not going to the advance of Christ, not to pursuing Him, to, to knowing Him, to loving Him, to, to being a better witness about Him and the power of the gospel, not focused on my own life and, and how I want my life to demonstrate the power that the gospel is, not focused on that, but focused on everyone else's life and, and their weaknesses and their sin and really narrowing in on that, becoming hypercritical. You with me? I want you to understand what really matters is Christ. Look what he says in verse 10, going back, so that you may approve what is excellent. You know, again, guys, think about it. Just think, that's why I want you to read the letter, because, you know, excellent. Like, I have a meal, and I go, that was excellent, you know? But he's not talking about food, right? That's not the idea here. Think about the big, it's the big, way bigger than that. That was an excellent Netflix show. You know, I mean, it, it, he's not looking for them to know, you know, that. Like, you, you get what I'm saying? I want you to understand what really matters. I want you to prove the things that are superior. I wish, I wish it said this, but it doesn't. Uh, he says you may approve what is excellent. Can I just paraphrase? You may approve the one who is superior. You may give yourself to him more fully. And anything that stands in the way of that, you move it to the side. You ignore it. You push it back. Which is, which is what hopefully, and by the way, stuff constantly keeps trying to creep in, yeah? But you can't let it stay there. Or you can, and then the mission goes off course. Paul loves this church. This is a good church. What do I mean by good? Nice building? No. They love Christ. They were, they had been and were giving themselves to the cause of Christ, which is why they partnered with Paul, because that's what Paul was doing full time. That was his cause. And so in any way that they could, they were supporting that man because he was making the gospel known. And they were doing the same thing there in Philippi, proclaiming the gospel, defending the gospel, confirming the gospel. But trouble's a brewing. Remember Epaphroditus, they sent Epaphroditus all the way to Rome to give a gift to Paul and, and to minister to Paul, to help him in his time of need that he might continue the good fight, right? But when Epaphroditus got there, he would have, Paul would have said, how are things, right? No internet, no telephones. So you had to wait for people to come and show up or letters to be carried to you. It took forever to get the news, but there he is, Epaphroditus, and he's sharing these things and he's telling him these things. So Paul has joy over this church, but he wants to continue to have joy. He wants to continue to give thanks to God. So he writes. He's thankful for all that they've been and all that they are and all of their help that they have provided him in advancing the gospel. But he doesn't want to see that come to an end. He wants them to stay the course. Right? So you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, uh, or for the day of Christ in the ESV. But until is, I think, a better translation. Until the day of Christ, that's how it is in other translations. Or, as one translation puts it, until the day Christ returns. Let me tell you, let me tell you what, what drives Paul. It's Christ, it's Christ, right? So he's constantly 
he, he is consumed with him in a good way, in a, in a right way, right? And because of that, he is continually thinking about what the Lord promised. I'm coming again. I'm coming back. And will I find that you have been faithful? I've left you here. I've given you a commission, church, Christians, those that I have redeemed and saved and changed, made new creations in me that you might carry out the very commission that I've given you to make me known, to live for me, to show the world that I have conquered sin. Huh? Right? But I'm coming again. I'm coming again so that you can be where I am because I want you with me, but I've left you here for a time that you might do the work, the good work that I've given you to do. Paul's constantly thinking about that because he's constantly thinking about Christ. He, he maintains an eternal perspective, which I don't know about you, beloved, but I find it so difficult to do that. But I know that is exactly what I need to do. That is exactly what I need to do. Jeremy needs to do that more, right? Constantly thinking, this world is a passing away. It's a temporary thing. But my life revolves, or it should revolve, I should say, around not the temporary, not the stuff that's passing away, but the eternal, and more importantly, the eternal one. Who is a coming again? For me, for his church. And I'm going to have to give him an account. Should I say have to? And I want to give him an account. But I want, because of my love for him, I want to give him an account that he will find pleasing. You see? Which then redirects my focus onto what matters. Should I say what matters to him? So if what matters to me is not what matters to him, I need to change what matters to me. Or just discard it all together and make my life about him and what matters to him. He has bought me. He has redeemed me. He's coming again. This is temporary. It's perspective, folks. It's that singular focus and passion that we talked about that Paul had. He's, he's just constantly coming back to it. He said it in Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he began this good work and you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Here again in verse 10, so that you will approve what is excellent and still be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, until he comes again. He'll go on several more times in the letter, in the chapters, constantly making reference to his return. We're living in light of that, or at least we should be. And because of that, Certain things are not going to be that important to us, and, and other things, or should I say, the thing will be the most important to us. And that, folks, is the gospel. But this is a good church, right? And you can see they're starting to get distracted. Or... Maybe not all of them, but there's something there. There's seeds of distraction, should I say. And man, sometimes I don't just have seeds. I got like a forest. Trees have done grown up, man. Are you with me or no? I'm just saying, I'm with you. I'm just a real guy. So, chainsaw. Right? I mean, that's what you, that's what, Right? Until I see rightly again. So that they might be pure and blameless. Pure. All right? Pure. Real quick. The term pure can be translated as without spot. Without spot. The, the term was, uh, it was, so purity. Think of moral purity. I think that's the right way to translate the word. The term was derived from two words, sun and judge. Sun and judge. Sun, light, not sun, sun, light, sun and judge. So together the sense was, as one scholar points out, tested against the light of the sun. So completely pure, spotless, 
The picture is someone, maybe as someone suggested, of someone bringing out a garment or the like out into the sun to see if there was any stain or spot on it. Okay? Judged in the sun <laughs> and found to be without spot or stain. Right? It had... It has always, it generally is used in this moral sense, as, as I believe is the case here. And you'll find that also to be true in the rest of the New Testament when the letter is used, or the word is used. Moral purity. So, listen, if you're, if you're understanding what really matters, it is the gospel, right? Then you will pursue purity and be blameless because you will deny your sin and live for him. We'll talk about blameless in a second. You will deny your sin, you'll push back against it, and you'll walk in righteousness. You'll stop your grumbling, you'll stop your disputing, you'll deny your, you'll repent of your conceit, you're living according to your selfish ambition, and you will make life not all about you, but rather, as you should, all about Christ, if you will approve the things that are superior, or the one who is, if you truly understand what really matters. And you'll do that not only because sin is a deterrent to the progress of the gospel, that is, sin unrepented of, sin allowed to go unchecked, but it also... Also, it becomes a hindrance to the work of the gospel. It also, it says something about the gospel that isn't true. It says that the gospel doesn't really transform you, that the gospel doesn't have the power to change you. That's what it says. Whether you like it or not, that's what it says when you allow sin to go on in your life unchecked. But why would you do that? Well, because. Somewhere along the way, you forgot what was most important. Right? My pleasure is most important. Ease of life is most important. Not wanting to confront my sin. Just not dealing with it. That's most important to me. Well then? And blameless. This word means, it means one or the other, and blameless. Not giving offense or not causing one to stumble, or let me say it this way, not leading into sin, someone into sin, or not being led into sin. I think here, it, it could refer to either one, but in other words, putting a stumbling block in someone's path or to stumbling yourself. I, I think in the gist of what's going on here in the context, both could work, but I think the idea is so that you would walk without stumbling. Of course, when you stumble, you often cause others to stumble as well. So they both make sense, but so that you would be morally pure and walk without stumbling. They kind of complement one another. Stumbling over yourself. And when you stumble, right, it's hard to walk. It's certainly hard to run. And we're supposed to be pursuing Christ and advancing his cause with all of our being. And it's really difficult to do that if you're a stumbling around. But of course, if what matters most is advancing him, then you'll do everything in your power, and I should say better, the power of Christ and the power of the Spirit that dwells in you. You'll take the steps needed to embrace those means of grace that God has given you to their fullest so that you don't stumble, right? So like, if you want to win the race, folks, if you want to win the race, and you know you got a bad knee, right, baby? But you're in the race, sorry. And you know running on that knee is going to be very difficult. What would you do? Be like, eh, you know, I mean, if I stumble, I stumble, right? You're going to get a brace, Right? Good shoes, maybe a little pain pill, within reason, okay? All right? So, you see what I'm saying? You take the steps necessary. Why? You don't want to stumble. 
Because if you stumble, you're laying on the ground. For that matter, when you're laying on the ground, some other runner comes along and stumbles over you too. (laughs) What are you guys doing, grumbling and disputing? Don't do that. Drawing people away from what's most important. Don't do that. Stumbling all around. Falling over your sin. Don't do that. Of course, if your love is abounding and multiplying in the knowledge of God and all discernment, then you will approve the things that are superior. You will understand what really matters, and you will pursue moral purity and work hard in the strength of the Lord. It will be your purpose not to stumble so that you can run for Him. And then we close with this. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may improve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul just goes on. He just, his word pictures are beautiful. Filled with the fruit of of righteousness. That's what I want for this church. Filled to the uttermost. That is deeds, those deeds that are righteous in character that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Because that was, that was it for Paul. He was living his life for the glory of him. For the praise of him. And it, I'll, I'll close just with this. It reminds me When he says, he's so Christ-centered, so Christ-focused, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It reminds me, Thomas is preaching through the gospel of John. Wow, what a beautiful gospel that is. Could I encourage you to read through that too? That's it for me. That's my advice to you today. Read through Philippians and read through the gospel of John. That will do more for your life than anything else I think I could say to you, honestly. But he, he says this in John 15, 4. Jesus says this, and I, it's like you can just see it. He said, listen to what Paul says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I want you to approve what is excellent. I want you to know what really matters. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus says. Abide in me, John 15, 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Christ says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then a few verses later, he says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Brother, would you come on up and lead us in our time of remembrance.